please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And we'll read a brief portion from Acts chapter 1. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And Acts chapter 1. beginning at verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, and as we're going to be traversing all kinds of scriptures this morning, I pray that you would help us to focus that your spirit would give us illumination and that we would find great joy in your word and we would also grow in our sanctification. You uh, have heard Christ's prayer. Sanctify them through your word. Your word is truth. And uh, so, Father, we come to your word this morning and it's our desire that we would be conformed more and more to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that to that end you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach your word in each one of us to have that word quickened in our hearts uh, through faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in our study of the Trinity, we've come to the third person of the Holy Spirit, uh, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And as we examine what some theologians have called the shy uh, member of the Trinity, I think it's so important that we emphasize once again that there is no subordination of nature uh, within the Godhead. Um, don't ever think of Son or Spirit as being in any way inferior in nature to the Father. That's really heresy. And, um, and they are all equally God. They're all fully God. They all have the same divine attributes. Uh, the things that differ between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not with regard to their Godhead, it is regarding their roles and their relationships. And so what I thought I would do this time is just read a little bit from an ancient creed called the Athanasian Creed, that, uh, where the early church made some of these fine distinctions, and I think it's a wonderful creed that um, probably worthwhile for people to uh, to memorize Now I've left out some sections not because they're not good it was just to save uh, uh, time and space but uh, Athanasius and those early church fathers uh, would have agreed with the first sermon that the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely foundational to Christianity we should not treat as Christian those who deny the Trinity 
In fact, uh, the Athanasian Creed, if you read the whole thing, you'll say, in order to be saved, one must believe. In other words, they really treat this as being objectively important to Christianity. He would have also said, and the early church uh, said, that the uh, ancient Jews uh, understood the Trinity, maybe not in all of the ramifications that were developed later on, but at least the three foundational principles related to the Trinity. And we looked at quotes from some of those ancient Jews as well as uh, the early church uh, to that effect. But anyway, let me just quickly read through this, and you have it in your, your, your handouts. <clears throat> the first phrase is a very important one. It says that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And in that phrase, he's opposing both polytheism, a belief in many gods, as well as Unitarianism. But he's also opposing any separation of the persons of the Trinity. I think it's very important we understand what one person does, all of the other uh, persons are involved in, in some way. Here's what um, one early church father, Gregory Nazianzen, said. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. He was saying, yes, we can distinguish Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there isn't anything that one person of the Trinity is involved in that all three are not in some way involved in that work as well. Um, going on in the Athanasian Creed, it says, neither confounding the persons, that's opposing modalism, nor dividing the substance, that's opposing Arianism. And we're not going to comment on every phrase that's uh, in here, but every single phrase was so carefully worded and crafted to be opposing some aspect of some heresy and affirming, um, uh, aff affirming the truth. So I'm just going to, for the most part, read through this. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal, and yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Ghost almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost is Lord, and yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be both God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say that there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Ghost is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Ghost, not three Holy Ghosts. You might wonder, why does he have to be so pedantic, you know, going over every... It's because heretics were constantly coming in and saying, okay, yeah, we can affirm that, but... And then they would change things. And so they had to just cover all of the ground. He says, and in this trinity, none is afore or after other. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal together and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. 
and that's as far as I'll, I'm going to read in that. I think it would be fun sometime to go through the Athanasian Creed and show how every little word and every phrase was so carefully crafted. Once you understand the heretical background that they were working against, you just think, this is a marvelously crafted document. This is worth memorizing. This is a fantastic doctrine. But the main thing that I wanted to stress uh, from that this morning is that we must not think that the Spirit is in any way inferior to the Son or to the Father in terms of His nature. Um, there, um, uh, there, there is no subordination in nature is another way of saying it. Uh, each person of the Trinity willingly took on their roles and relationships and in doing so did not give up anything in terms of nature. Okay, that's the main point. Now, let me just illustrate the difference between nature and uh, roles. Let's just imagine in the human realm that there are two twins, and they are, they're just totally identical. Um, they've got uh, equal ability in arm wrestling and grades in school, and uh, almost every way you look at them, they are equal. They're even equal economically. They started off with $100,000 each, and usually that's not the case. There is no equality economically, but... Uh, one of them <coughs> decided, twin number one, invested in a business, and twin number two decided to invest in the stock market. Now, they're equally successful, both of them, but twin number two wants to make a little bit more money, and so he decides he wants to work for twin number one. Now, even though they are equal in every way, once he applies for this job and he is accepted in that job, his role changes. All of a sudden now, he has willingly, he has voluntarily, for his own benefit even, put himself in a position of submission and inequality in regard to role. Now, nobody's going to deny that he's still equal in arm wrestling and he can, he can do anything that the other brother can do, but in terms of his role, there is no equality. He has voluntarily put himself into a position where he must now obey his brother, at least while he's on the job, right? He has to obey his brother. He needs to submit to his brother. And so now there are different roles. Illustration two. Two young people in our congregation may be equals in roles when they're young, even though one's a male and the other is a female. Uh, they're under the authority of their parents. Uh, they're growing up, and uh, they may have an equality not only in nature, but an equality in, in role. But when they leave their parents and they become married they voluntarily enter into this marriage arrangement making vows where their roles now change. Now here's a mistake that many conservatives have made. Um, there are people who think that because the wife submits to the husband that women in general must submit to men in general. That is absolutely wrong and it's dangerous. Uh, I think you can see that um, if uh, anybody's wife has to submit to any uh, uh, other man, there could be ma major conflicts that would be set up. That is a, a wrong-headed uh, kind of a thinking, and yet there is many hyper-conservatives who treat other women that way. Uh, they treat them as if they are not equals in every sense of the role, even though there's no way that they can justify their failure to treat them as equals in terms of role and relationship. Now, there's more roles in relationships than marriage. There's the church, there's the state, there's other things like that that can create inequalities as well. But I think it's very important we keep clearly in mind there's a difference between equality of nature and equality of role. There could be people who are totally equal in role, um, but once they have 
change, maybe a job description or something like that, that role changes. Okay, so maybe I've said too much on that, but I, I'd rather say too much than too little because there's so many mistakes that are made along these lines. Well, this is the way it is with the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are unequal in their roles, but they're equally and fully God. And it's the role of the Spirit that we're going to be examining today, and it's a role that fades into the background. The Holy Spirit's role is to glorify the Father and the Son and to carry out their will. And according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit prefers not to be the focus of attention. He prefers not to be in the limelight. There's one scholar uh, says uh, he prefers to be the limelight that shines upon the Father and upon the Son. And before we make any applications to ourselves, I want to look at a number of scriptures and uh, six different points, six different ways in which the Spirit of God is shining the spotlight on Son to the glory of the Father. First of all, the Spirit assists the Son and the Father with their work, and in doing so, remain, remains in the background. And you can see this right from the first chapter of the Bible through to the last chapter of the Bible. You can see it written all over the Scripture. While the Spirit of God was present in Genesis 1, verse 2, he was hovering over the waters, he was energizing this world, yet there's not much mention at all that is made of the Holy Spirit. Uh, most of the focus in Genesis chapter 1 is upon the Father and upon the Word. And there's hardly any mention of the Spirit at all, and yet he was the one who carries out the Father's plan and the Word of the Son. In fact, in Psalm 104, verse 30, speaking to the Father about his creative work, it says, You send forth your Spirit, they are created. It was the Spirit who was involved in this creation. It was the Son who was involved. It was the Father who was involved. They're all three involved, but even though there was a pervasive work and an omnipotent power of the Spirit working in creation, there is very little mention that is made of him. And this is why some have called the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. Not shy in the sense of bashful, but shy in the sense of willing to be in the background. Now let me give you an example from the last book of the Bible. In Revelation 4 through 5, you've got an incredibly awesome description of the throne of the Father with Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's just an incredible description. And yet in those two chapters, you only have two brief phrases in two verses uh, concerning the Holy Spirit. One's in chapter 4 and one's in chapter 5. Let me read you the one in chapter 4. Revelation 4, verse 5. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, don't get hung up on the number seven there. The book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of symbols, symbolic numbers, symbolic pictures. And commentators point out that all throughout the Bible, the number seven is a number of perfection. And so uh, what commentators say is that the Spirit of God in all of his perfections is being displayed here. And what is the Spirit doing? As the, these light lamps are shining on the throne, they're shining on Jesus, shining on the sun, it's showing how the Spirit's role, His work, is to shine and give the glory to the Father uh, and to the Son. And so that's the first uh, imagery there. Then in chapter 5, uh, in verse 6, John describes the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now again, this speaks of the Spirit in all of His per perfection. He's all-seeing, 
He's involved in providence. There's absolutely nothing that escapes from the Holy Spirit's attention. And so he's obviously indispensable to the success of the Father and the Son's mission. But I want you to notice here it says that he is sent. And secondly, there's very little mention that is made of the Spirit. Very little mention. And the remarkable thing is the Spirit prefers that his role is to assist now that is so backwards to the way that we tend to think we want to get credit for the things that we do uh, except that there are some people that have been given the gift a spiritual gift called the gift of helps to operate just like the spirit in fact they are probably the closest to the heart of the spirit of uh, manifested of any of the spiritual gifts that are out there because the people with the gift of helps they don't want to be in the limelight just like the holy spirit they find great love and great satisfaction in serving another person and making him a success in fact nothing makes them feel better than laboring in the life of another person and when that person gets a success it just gives them great joy i love this gift i love the gift that when i see people with the gift of helps I just think, man, the Spirit of God is so much upon that person because this is not something that is common to human nature. And yet, uh, it's a remarkable thing. Those of you who know people with the gift of helps, you know exactly what I am talking about. And so anyway, back to here. I see a person uh, uh, of the Trinity who delights in being an assister who stands in the background. In fact, four times in the Gospel of John, he is called the Helper. That's one of his names. Um, and this ought to give encouragement to those of you who have the gift of helps because uh, you're the only one that has your gift named after the Spirit. Okay, it's um, uh, something very closely reflecting his heart. Second, when the Spirit gives special revelation, he always points to Christ. This is another way in which he's shining the spotlight away from himself. John 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Spirit doesn't testify to himself. He will testify of me. Revelation 19.10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. Now, 2 Peter 1, 20-21, that's listed on the overhead there, is, talks about the process that, the, uh, that, that God used in giving the the scriptures knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of god spoke as they were moved by the holy spirit and so the the bible is a gift from the spirit he was the one who created this bible what does the bible talk about it talks about jesus and over and over again you can see that in the scriptures christ talked about it in luke 24 he doesn't tend to talk very much about himself. He talks sometimes about himself. But most of what the Spirit does is talking about the Father and especially talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. A third indicator. His role is to glorify the Son. John 16, 12 through 14 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I want you to notice four things here. First of all, he does not speak on his own authority. 
Second, he does not reveal anything on his own initiative. It's only what he hears, presumably from the son there, it's only what he hears that he speaks. It's the son who takes the initiative. Thirdly, verse 14 says his role is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourthly, he speaks about Jesus. And you see this emphasis over and over again in the Bible. Okay, fourth indicator. The Holy Spirit's role is to empower our evangelism. And what is evangelism all about? Evangelism is to turn people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring the good news of Jesus. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses, not to the Holy Spirit, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He empowers us to witness about Jesus. You see where the Spirit's focus is? And you absolutely cannot disconnect the Spirit from the Son in the Scripture. Exegetically, it's absolutely impossible. And one of the reasons I, I bring this up, just in terms of an application, is unfortunately there is a movement within the evangelical church in recent years that says that people in Africa and other places that maybe have never heard the gospel can be saved and the way they're saved is that the Spirit of God um, works through creation or maybe through other religions, but they may have no knowledge of Jesus whatsoever, and yet they can still be saved because the Spirit works independently then of the message of the, of the Son. And what I want to tell you is that just ain't so. Uh, Romans 10, verses 1 and following, I think is so clear on that. The testimony of Scripture is that the Spirit has chosen to draw people to salvation only through the knowledge of the Son. By the way, this has some bearing, just came to my mind right now, on our relationship to children. Um, children who die in infancy, how are they saved? It's because of the knowledge of the parents who have been drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but anyway, look at Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's saying zeal's not enough. There is a specific kind of knowledge that they have to have. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law. The word end there is telos. It means the goal. It's the thing that you're shooting towards. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he goes and he says, this is what the Old Testament was talking about. Verses 5 uh, through 10, he goes through several Old Testament passages showing that the whole message was to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He is saying missions is absolutely indispensable. You cannot have the advancement of the kingdom apart from missions. 
Uh, pagans cannot be saved without preachers bringing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And you can see the same emphasis in Acts uh, chapters 10 through 11. The Spirit of God in those chapters was moving in Peter's life to prepare Peter to bring the gospel to Cornelius. And then he was working in Cornelius's life, and then he was working in Peter's life as he brings the message of the gospel, but it was not until the message of Jesus Christ was proclaimed to him that the Spirit chose to come down, convert, and transform uh, those people. Um, Acts 11, 13 through 14, um, even when there's an angel uh, who is talking, he's, he's not bringing uh, the gospel. Uh, he puts that into the hands of, of human preachers. Uh, he says, there, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, some people say, oh, why don't God just send angels over there and convert people? Well, God does send angels, and he uses them to prepare people sometimes, and the Spirit of God prepares people, but until Jesus Christ is proclaimed, they do not come to a saving knowledge of him. Acts eleven twelve, Peter says, The Spirit told me to go to them. Why does he have to go? I mean, the Spirit's perfectly capable of revealing uh, even Jesus Christ to them, but God has chosen to use the preaching of the Word to save people. So, fifth, here's a fifth indicator. The role of the Holy Spirit is to apply the redemption that was purchased by Christ into the lives of people, bringing them new life and uniting them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of his roles. And you can see that. I'm not going to read all of the scriptures there, but in John 3, 3 through 8, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, Acts 26, 18, there are so many different scriptures that demonstrate this. Let me just uh, read you one. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, you read that in context. Who's the one who shines in their lives? It's the Holy Spirit. And what's he shining? It's the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, so there's all kinds of indications that uh, even a world that is hostile to Christ, the only way it's going to be converted is as the Spirit points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth, the Spirit's sanctification in believers' lives is designed to make us not more and more like the Holy Spirit. It says more and more like Christ. Now, let me just outline very quickly uh, some of the ways in which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in sanctification. We could do this for every one of the points, but... The Father planned our sanctification because Romans 8.29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, there's the planning, to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's the Christ-centeredness. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, here's the planning of the Father, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then the Son came to accomplish that redemption. He purchased it. Ephesians 5.25 Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her. And then the Spirit is the one who carries out the planning of the Father and the Word of the Son in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so his whole work of sanctification 
is pointing to Jesus. It's conforming us to the likeness of the Son. When the Spirit stirs us up in prayer, what does he do? He doesn't have us focus upon him. He has us focus upon the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator and to go to the Father with our petitions. When we worship, we do the same thing. You see the pattern all the way through. And I don't need to uh, spend too much time on that. Now, all of that has huge, huge ramifications for how we should live. We've already looked at uh, some applications. Let me end with three more, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick up next week with more on the Trinity. First of all, understanding how the Spirit works, I think, can help to correct misconceptions on freedom and liberty. Uh, there are some people who think that um, law, for example, is utterly incompatible with freedom. You know, if God has made us free, you know, we're, there, there can't be any law. Or that um, predestination is somehow incompatible with our freedom. You know, if God's planned it, then I guess I don't have any liberty. I don't have any choices. And we said, no, that's not the case at all. Not the case at all. Not only does the Spirit give us freedom from bondage and from sin and death, etc., that's Romans 8, 2, but He is truly free. His will, by that definition, His will is not bound by our will. Not in any way. Some people think He is. You know, God's kind of wringing His hands, oh, if only people would believe, you know, and His will is bound by our will. No, He's right. So uh, Romans 9.19 says, For who has resisted his will? Speaking of the distribution of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12.11 says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now that's saying that what spiritual gifts every one of you gets is sovereignly distributed by the Holy Spirit. He can do whatever he wants. He can give to you whatever spiritual gifts that he wants. Now, if you've done much reading in the Scripture, this ought to be a little bit of a head-scratcher because the Father has already ordained every spiritual gift that you're going to get, and the Son has purchased every spiritual blessing that you're going to purchase, which implies that the Son can't be giving what the Father hasn't already planned, and the Spirit can't be working in your life what the Father has not already planned. How do those go together? If everything's already planned out and predestined by the Father, how can the Spirit be free like it says he is? How, excuse me, how can he in any way be sovereign? Well, the answer is quite simply that he freely wills the will of the Father and of the Son. They are of one will. There can be true freedom and total submission. And what the Father and the Son delight in? Well, the Spirit delights in. Submission to the Son's will does not make the Spirit unfree. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He's the definition of liberty. He's the giver of liberty. He's the source. John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's a play on words because the word wind and spirit are exactly the same word in the Greek. But he is saying here, the Spirit can regenerate whomever he wants to regenerate. It's totally up to the Holy Spirit whom he's going to regenerate. Now, again, you've got the same problem because the Father has 
predestined that there's going to be a specific number of people who will be regenerated. And the son only died for a specific number of people whom he would save. While he was hanging on the cross and Pharaoh was burning in hell, he wasn't thinking, boy, I hope I can save Pharaoh somehow. It was kind of late for Pharaoh, wasn't it? No, his purpose was not to save those who would not believe. His purpose was to save the elect that the Father had given to him. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no wise uh, cast out. And so, uh, again, the, the question is, if the Spirit is subject to the Son and Father, how can he be free? And the answer is that each member of the Trinity has freely chosen the, the various roles that they have entered into, and they work it in conformity with each other. Uh, what the Spirit did, he freely did, and yet it was planned by the Father. The only time a person under authority does not feel free is when he or she is bucking against that authority. That's the only time. You're, you're the ones who make yourselves feel in bondage. Okay? There is no necessary contradiction between God's predestination and total liberty. There is no necessary contradiction in the phrase that occurs twice in James, the perfect law of liberty. Some people say, give me a break. Law is the opposite of liberty. And God says, no, it's the perfect law of liberty. That's the only way you can have uh, liberty. <clears throat> and the way that we find liberty is by approaching the law through the grace of God the riches of Christ, all that he has purchased, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's how we enter into it. Now, part of the problem, I think, is that the word freedom has had so many different definitions, it's almost become a useless word. Um, it means different things to different people. And so there are ways in which you absolutely do not have a free will, and there's other ways in which you do have a free will. You do not have a free will to jump 20 feet in the air. I don't care how much you wish it and how much you will it, it's not going to happen, right? You don't have a free will to be a fish or to be a bird. Uh, you can only be that which is consistent uh, with your nature. But you do have the freedom to be and to do what God has willed. Now, some Arminians insist that unless you have the power of contrary choice, you're not truly free. Unless you could just freely choose this way or that way, you're not truly free. Well, let me tell you something. God does not have the power of contrary choice. And God is the most free of all. And uh, I give a, a, a couple of scriptures up there. Titus 1, verse 2 speaks of God who cannot lie. That means he doesn't have the power of contrary choice. He doesn't have to say, well, I guess I could lie or not lie. No, he cannot lie. He cannot, okay? James 1, 13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, there were people who had the power of contrary choice. Names were Adam and Eve, and look where it got them, Right? I am glad that in heaven I'm not going to have the power of contrary choice because I'd always be wondering, man, at some point, maybe a million years from now, I'm going to decide to sin and I'm going to be forever lost, you know? No, God says, you can't be lost. You can't fall out of my hand because you won't have the power of contrary choice. You're only going to freely will to do that which is good. Even though I've planned it, you're freely going to do it. You're going to delight in it. Okay, so don't make those. The Spirit, you know, God is the pattern of liberty and of freedom. And we need to de define our terms by him. And so liberty means glad surrender and submission to God's will. Amen? Glad submission and surrender to his will. That's true liberty. When does a train have true liberty? It's when it restricts itself to the railroad tracks for which it was made. And the moment it says, 
you know, this is so restrictive and it wants to jump the track, it's useless. You know, it can't go. It's, it has no liberty, has no power. And so we ought not to make those artificial uh, distinctions. Let God be the definition of liberty. Now, earlier I applied the doctrine of the Spirit to the gift of helps, and to me that's, that's such a cool, uh, a cool thing to meditate on. But let's go beyond that. Let's realize, even if you don't have the gift of helps, it's still a duty that uh, we need to be humble. As uh, Christ was, as the, uh, the Spirit was, we need to reflect the, the humility of the Trinity. And I would say, even in the Spirit's work, there is a pattern that we need to be uh, following, and that is, as much as possible, we need to follow his model in being willing to do service without getting recognition. Now, if we get recognition, fine, but that's not what we should be doing it for. One author said, there is something in all of us that wants to be seen and to receive the credit for what we've done. To accept the behind-the-scenes position where no one may know and notice the service we have rendered is difficult indeed. To work sacrificially, all for the purpose of pointing constantly to another and for the honor he might receive can be extremely hard to accept. But this is the way of the Spirit, unquote. Now, I think this is a fantastic test of your sanctification and the degree to which you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The more of the Spirit that is upon you, the more you're going to want all glory, laud, and honor to go to, to God. And the more you're going to delight when God is, you're going to be, you know, delighting in the, in the credit that God brings into the lives of other people. It's going to be an outward-directed focus. It's just the way that the Spirit works. And so be suspicious of people who claim to be, you know, have a second baptism of the Spirit and to be filled with Spirit, and yet they are so filled with pride and self-glorification that they have a hard time drinking uh, uh, very straightly. Be suspicious uh, of what's going on there. <clears throat> I think this says something about the ostentatious exercise of spiritual gifts in some charismatic circles. It seems more and more uh, in the last 50 years that the, the emphasis has gone away more and more heavily away from Father and away from Son and to the Holy Spirit to the point where it seems like they are totally Spirit-centered churches. Um, even the names of the churches many times uh, focus on the Spirit. And it's so contrary to the Spirit's lack of showiness, it makes you wonder what's going on. It made Paul wonder what was going on in Corinth. Over and over, Paul said that the Spirit gives things to us for not self-edification, even though that is true, but he gives it for the edification of all. Uh, Paul said, for the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Then 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 says that, you know, if somebody speaks in tongues, prophecy, does mighty works, and he doesn't have love for others, he says it says nothing. He's saying, be suspicious of that, you know, if these guys have claims to all these mighty works. And then in verses 4 through 7, he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what characterizes the Holy Spirit, okay? And I think this is a, a great test of whether, you know, the charismatic gift that a person may be displaying, whether that is fleshly 
or whether it is real, whether it comes from the Spirit. Does the person seek to bring exhortation and comfort to men? 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Paul says that what the Spirit gives edifies the church. Verse 4. I think I may have written some more up there. All things must be done for the building up uh, of the church. Now, one last application I'd like to make is that we need to marvel at the way Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work so beautifully together and delight in each other so much despite the fact that they have different roles. Actually, you should say precisely because of the fact that they have different roles. And we ought to say, Lord, I want our marriage, I want our family to have such a grasp of these different roles that we can find the same joy, that we can find such a smoothly functioning uh, uh, family for ourselves as well. Now, next week, we're going to look at some of the culture-transforming implications of the Trinity, but... Uh, we're just going to close with that for now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for sending the Holy Spirit into our lives. And I thank you for his work of taking our hearts away from self-orientedness and uh, 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 being, uh, as we're sanctified more and more, being oriented and concerned about the interests of others more than our own interests, as Philippians commanded us to be. And we thank you, Father, that uh, this is really a reflection of uh, you, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, that uh, all uh, the Godhead shows this kind of humility. I just pray, O oh God, that you would work in us powerfully by your word. Uh, th th these characteristics that we have looked at this morning, we'll be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.